Good morning, everybody. Uh, a few things as we get started. First off, obviously, we're leaning heavy into the football theming this morning. Uh, I do want to say, and I have the receipts to prove it, I can show you the downloads that, that I, I created that video and downloaded it from a website before the playoffs even began. So uh, this would still be our theming even if the Lions had disappointed you all this season. Uh, I also want to thank everybody for your, your prayers this week. Uh, those of you who reached out via text or, or phone call, uh, I, I actually, I got a, a a get well card in the mail. That was a really nice treat, something you don't see very often. Usually I only get cards if it's my birthday or maybe around Christmas time. So I was excited at first. I thought it was a late Christmas card, but it was a get well card. Uh, I also, th I actually, you know, no more umbrella for me either. Uh, someone let me borrow a cane. Actually, Daryl, thank you very much for this. Uh, I did specifically ask for one, though. You know those ones that you twist and then a sword comes out of the handle? Uh, he said he didn't have one of those, so this will do. Um, regardless, um, last week we started this new sermon series as we're going to be traveling through the gospel that John wrote. And uh, it hasn't been that long, so I hope you remember back to last week, we talked a little bit about um, how by default we all do it. E even myself, we group people into categories, and, and we try to keep our categories very black and white. Uh, specifically, last week, we pointed out that there are people that enjoy being in the spotlight, you know, that thrive under the bright lights, and there are those that are more comfortable in the background. There are those that are more comfortable, you know, maybe existing in the shadows of a crowd, and, and neither is wrong, neither is right. We just, we notice these differences in people, and then we naturally group them uh, into these, these separate categories. Uh, there's a whole lot of different ways that we can categorize people, and I don't need to go over all of them today. And I'm sure right off the top of your head, you're going to be able to think of a few of these categories yourself. Um, there was a specific person, though, that I was thinking of this week as I prepared my sermon. Uh, and it's, it's a person that just the sight of their face kind of tends to divide us into categories. It'll force us kind of into groups. So, so fair warning before I put this picture up on the screen, everybody take a deep breath. Okay, compose yourselves. So I don't want to hear any gasps or, or any cheers. Try your best to restrain yourself as we put this picture up on the screen. I said, let's control ourselves. All right, but can you feel the tension? Oh, we can leave it up there. Leave it up there for me. All right, can you feel the tension created by, by putting just this one man's face up on a screen in front of a, a, a group of people? Right, people tend to maybe sit up a little bit straighter, start looking out of the corner of their eyes, try, trying to see how their friends and their neighbors are going to react to the sight of this image. And why do we do that? We, we do that because if we know how they react to the sight of this image, we're going to be able to group them into a certain category that we have in our head. If, if we see our neighbor is, is wincing and looking a little bit disgusted, well, that's going to tell us something about them. I promise you there's at least two guys in here right now that are resisting the masculine urge to high-five each other and yell America at the sight of this picture as well. I understand. Right? I understand why Donald J. Trump is a divisive character in our world today, and I'm, I'm not here passing judgment either way, right? We don't have to worry about our tax exemption status getting affected by this sermon. I'm just simply telling you I understand why he is divisive. Everyone has an opinion, and everyone thinks their opinion is the proper one. Now, I understand why he's divisive. I mean, for 14 seasons, we watched this man's reality TV show, right? We watched The Apprentice as he was this business tycoon as he searched for his next 
apprentice, someone who would come along behind him, learn from him in his business acumen. So for 14 years, we watched, and we, we would pick our favorite contestant, the one who we really wanted to see win the reality TV show, and we would celebrate in their contestants' successes, and, and, and we would also suffer along with their failures. Maybe your favorite contestant on his game show maybe would win. But most of the time, the last words that your favorite contestant on The Apprentice would hear from this man behind me is, you're fired. Right? No wonder why we find him so divisive. It's a very long time to play a bad guy on television, isn't it? Right? Because we invest in these people and we think, you know, he fired the right person, they really deserved it, or no, he fired the wrong person, he crushed their dreams. I understand why he's divisive. But that TV show's been off the air for like seven years now. I wonder what he's been up to for the last seven years. Anybody know? No? Okay. The reason I thought of Mr. Trump this morning, and I thought of his television reality show, The Apprentice, is I think it gives us a very modern example of how many of us would go about finding an apprentice ourselves. If we were going to, to try to find someone that, we were going to, that was going to learn from us, someone that we were going to take under our wing, someone that we were going to be able to impart all of the wisdom that's been given to us, I, I think the way he did it is probably the way that we would do it as well. We would look through a handful of qualified applicants. We'd look through the resumes on paper. You know, we kind of put them through the ringer so we could see how it would all pan out. We would test them. We would test their minds. We would test their spirits. Maybe we'd test their problem-solving skills. We'd try to see how they respond to different stresses. We would weed away the weakest applicants. And by the end of the process, hopefully we would be left with the strongest, the most qualified, the most capable employee or, or the most capable one to invest in, to teach all that we know, to, to help, to hope that maybe one day they would be able to replicate our success. Right? That's a logical way to do it. it, it it's what I would do if I was going to do it. If I was at the stage of, of, of my ministry where I was starting to look and say, I'm going to need someone to come up and fill the gap behind me after I am gone, it's what I would do. I would take a bunch of applications, review their qualifications, call their references. I would interview them, give them personality tests. Right? I would do all of these things to make sure that the apprentice that I was going to call was going to be the right person to step into this role, was going to be the right guy at the right time. But that's not what Jesus did, is it? Uh, today, John is going to tell us about Jesus calling his first apprentices or as we call them, disciples. So it should not surprise us that Jesus' methods are very different than the ones that we see employed on reality television. And I do have to admit it, they are also probably very different than I would employ in my own reality if I was going to be leaning on just my own understanding. Uh, before we do open the scripture today, and we're going to be starting to read in uh, the first chapter of John in verse 35, uh, but before we, we do start reading today, uh, I do want to point out, last week I told you that there was two Johns we were going to be reading about. Today there's going to be three Johns that we are going to be alluding to today. And I just want to point out again that these are not the same man. And, and I know most of us are going to scoff and say that you already know that, but Here's the truth. Isn't it our goal, or wouldn't we hope that each and every sermon that is preached, that maybe there is someone that is listening to it that is hearing that scripture for the very first time? Okay, so we want to make sure that everyone is able to understand the scripture that we are talking about today. So you're going to hear three Johns mentioned today. You're going to have John, 
John the Baptist, right, or John the Baptizer. We, we've already also talked about the author of this book, John, so John the author. And then also you're going to hear a third name mentioned today, and that's going to be John, the father of Peter. Right, apparently the first century Jewish, uh, Jewish folks, they weren't very creative with their baby names. They did not have the Amazon bestseller 100,000 plus baby names. They, they had like four or five names and they just recycled them over and over. It was, oh, you look like a Simon, you look like a John, and, and so forth. All right, so we're going to begin to read today in verse 35, and we're going to go through verse 42. This is what it says. It says, the next day, again, John, and this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak, and again, John the Baptist, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So there's a couple verses, uh, a little gap that exists from where we stopped last week to where we picked up today. And what we kind of just jumped over is John, the author, telling us uh, of the first meeting between Jesus and John the Baptist. You see, when Jesus first arrived on the scene, John the Baptist, he immediately recognizes that he is in the presence of something great, something wonderful. In fact, the verse right before we started reading, verse 34, uh, this is what John says. John the Baptist says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist, at this point in his life, he himself, he has a following of apprentices. He has a following of disciples. He has men who are following him, who are learning from him. But John introduces them to someone who is greater than he is. The next day, Jesus comes back, and John the Baptist is sitting around with you know, his men, with his guys, and, and Jesus comes back around, and two of the Baptist's disciples, they decide they're going to leave, and they're going to follow Jesus. Uh, we're told one is named Andrew, and the other one's name is not giving us, given to us in the text, I should say, so there, there can be some debate about his identity. Uh, I follow along the lines that this other disciple that approaches Jesus in this moment is John the author, but regardless, two of John the Baptist's disciples, they approach Jesus, and they start following after Jesus. And what does John do when two of his disciples decide they're going to, to, to leave his crew? You see, to most rabbis, to, to most teachers of the day, having disciples, it was a very important thing. It was a big deal. You know, who was lining up to be your apprentice, if you will, or, or how many men were jumping on your bandwagon. It, it was important to the social hierarchy. Right? Disciples leaving your crew and going to join another, I, I don't believe most rabbis would have thought that was a good thing. Rabbis also used their disciples today like we use apprentices or we use interns. 
Right? The, the disciples would go and they would do many of the little things that the teacher did not want to do himself. This is something we're very familiar with in our world. Again, if, you are, if you're a plumber and you have an apprentice and someone needs to go down into that crawl space under the building, someone needs to fight through the spider webs and God knows what else is under there to, to run a pipe, who's doing that job, you or the apprentice? It was the same way in the first century, right? If you had an inquiry to, to make, you wouldn't go yourself. Send a disciple. Right? You've run out of figs? Well, send a disciple to the market. Your robes are at the dry cleaners. Send the intern to go pick them up. Right? So losing these very valuable, these, these status symbols to most, this would stink. This would be a bad thing. But again, what do we see John the Baptist do? He does nothing. He does nothing to stop these men from leaving. He actually pushes them in Jesus' direction. What he says is, there is the Lamb of God. And upon hearing this, Andrew and, and again, maybe John, the author, they go and they follow Jesus. And, and they go to him and they ask, where are you staying? Doesn't really make sense in our context. Uh, if it was us, you know, we, we would walk over and say, hi, is there room for me in your group? Or hi, are, are you taking applications? But this is exactly what these men were doing just in their own way. They're saying, Jesus, where are you staying? Because wherever it is, you are going, so are we. Jesus inquires of them. He, he, Jesus says, what are you seeking? They ask, where are you staying? And then Jesus' simple and profound response is he invites them to come and see. And from that invitation, we, we see Jesus we, we see Jesus collect his first two followers, first two disciples, but he's not done. Uh, verses 43 through 46, it says, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus finds Philip and invites Philip to come and join his crew as well. So what John has recorded for us is, is Jesus has invited three men, but we're told the names of five disciples that he has now collected. We have Andrew, Again, maybe John, Philip, but also Peter and Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's interesting because, again, remember I told you last week that the vast majority of the gospel that John wrote is unique. It's, it's information not contained elsewhere. And, and Nathaniel is one of the ways in which John's gospel is unique. It's the only gospel where we're given Nathaniel's name. Without these writings, we may not know that he existed, at least not by his name. So anyway, again, what we have is we have Andrew, John, Philip, Peter, and Nathaniel. This is who John, the, the author, records as, as these five that Jesus collects. But this is what I want you to, to, to see, or what I want you to learn from this message that we're calling the greatest call, uh, is that here by the end of the first chapter of John, by the time we get through this first chapter, there must be something here that we can learn and something we can apply. Because knowledge is cool. Understanding who called who and when they called these guys and what their names were, 
It, it might help you one day in a round of you know, uh, youth group jeopardy or something like that, but knowledge alone is never going to help you do what you have been called to do. Right? Knowledge alone is never what's going to simply make you be able to do what you've called to do, which is you yourself make disciples. If we do believe and we understand that to be our mission, then we have to understand what is it that we can extract from this story that might open our eyes to something that we are not doing, or maybe just something that we're not doing very well uh, ourselves. If, if, if our goal is to be a follower of Jesus, then this is something we must figure out. So what I see in these 10 or 11 verses is three really important things for us to know. If, if our desire is to truly, is to truly multiply, uh, the first thing that I see here is, is that any notoriety that we gain is used to point others towards Jesus. And this is the lesson that I think we learn here from John the Baptist in this account that we're given. Because John, at this moment, John certainly possessed a certain level of notoriety in society. Right? To some degree, John's name was famous. People knew of this man, John, who was out living in the wilderness, wearing clothes made from camel hides, who was eating locusts, and who was preaching a message of repentance for the kingdom of God was near. John was hand-selected from conception to do this job, to, to be the one, again, that would come and would pave the way for the coming Christ. And John did his job incredibly well. Uh, you've heard me mention it before, that by the end of his life, Jesus would say of him, among any born of woman, none has ever been greater than John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist had a job to do. He was dedicated to his job. He was faithful to his job. And it wasn't just Jesus who noticed this about John. The people of the day, they did as well. Those that were seeking something, they came to him and they asked if they could follow him. And he did. He, he took his own disciples under his wing. Those who were curious, they came in great crowds and he faithfully delivered his message to them. People who were powerful, they also came to him. They listened, but they doubted him. They tried to discredit him. You see, at this moment in time, John the Baptist, he had everyone's attention. He was, he was having his moment, if you would. He was the it thing. I am very confident in saying that by first century standards, John the Baptist at this moment was famous. The common folk knew of him. The leaders of men, they knew of him. Guys were lining up to follow him, wanting to be like John and John does not tell the people to go and get lost. At least not the people that were actually coming to seek truth. He did kind of tell the religious hypocrites to go and get lost, but when the crowds would gather, John didn't say, get out of here. John didn't say, don't pay attention to me. He said, I don't want you to know my name. What he said was, please listen to me. In fact, if you still have your Bibles open, if we jump back to, to verse 30 and 31, this is what John says. He says, this is he of whom I said... After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Right, John says, thanks so much for coming, out for, uh, coming to my TED Talk today. You might think you're here because I'm cool, but the truth is I'm not. He, he says, I'm glad you're here because what I'm here to do today is to point the way towards someone to something that is much cooler than I am. 
And when these two men specifically that we talked about, when they commit, who had committed their lives to following John, who may have left families, who may have left jobs and homes behind to follow John, as soon as Jesus was within sight, John pointed to Jesus and he said, there he is, guys. That's him. That's the one that I've been telling you about this whole time. See, John the Baptist, he had fame. John had notoriety. And it was helpful to the mission to which he was called. But all the while, John kept his head on his shoulders. He, he didn't get puffed up. And as I wrote that, I felt really bad. John kept his head on his shoulders. If you know how John lost his life, that would not always be the case. I wasn't even trying to make a pun there. The point is, John did not look to Andrew. John the Baptist did not look to John the author going to follow Jesus on a new path as him losing any of his clout. Of course, as Christians, we are called to be humble. We should not make it our priority to seek fame and notoriety. But if it finds us, if you are blessed to be handed a platform of any type, right, the notoriety itself is not sinful. The question is, what will you do with it? John was never worried about building his own kingdom. John was always about building God's kingdom. The notoriety that he gained was God's right from the start, so he was not worried about maintaining it. He was not worried about protecting it. So I do think we should be careful how we judge those who do have notoriety, like John the Baptist. Let's not assume that every pastor who shepherds a large church or, or every minister who has a best-selling book or, or millions of YouTube followers is automatically doing something wrong. Again, if fame and notoriety are the goal, then yes, you are lost. But can you confidently say that, that the, from that fame and notoriety that may be bestowed upon some, that that could not end up being an amazing opportunity for the masses to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ? So again, any notoriety that we gain is used to point others towards Jesus. Second point, Jesus' invitation is to come and see. Verse 39 says, come and you will see in response to the direct request uh, to, to follow him. Uh, this is a phrase that has been made popular recently by the TV program, The Chosen, of which I am the fan, uh, fan I should say. Uh, actually, as I was driving here this morning, I stopped at a red light behind a white Toyota Sienna, and they had a big old sticker in the middle of their rear window that just simply said, come and see. Uh, the Chosen has used this phrase, this, this call of Jesus, if you will, as a tagline in their advertising. Uh, they offer merchandise that you can purchase with that uh, wording on it to support their mission. It's very simple, but also a very profound offer that Jesus makes to these two men. He says, if you want to see where I'm going, or if you want to see where I am staying, if you want to see if all of the things that John the Baptist has said about me are true, the simple invitation is just come and see. And I don't think it was said come and see as a command. I don't think it was spoken in a harsh tone of dominance. I think it was an offer I think it was said with an outstretched hand, if you want to see, take my hand and I will show you. There is no test offered to these men. You remember last week we established that Jesus is the word that John wrote about. Uh, when John said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So yes, Jesus is God. So when I think of this, I must admit 
excuse me, that, that Jesus would certainly have some advantages available to him when he's selecting the right apprentices or the right disciples. Right? Jesus would have some advantages and some insights that, that, yes, even the reality TV host Donald J. Trump may not have at his disposal. So when Jesus says, come and see, he already knows what the response is going to be. Right? He may already know what the individual is going to make of the offer that was just given to them, but Jesus still makes the offer regardless. He, he makes the offer without any strings attached, without any standards to be met. Jesus just simply sees two men who are eager, two men who are hungry and thirsty for God's will on their life, and he offers them a chance to come and see. He offers them the opportunity to come and follow him. Similarly, which is a word I can never say, you see when he also meets Philip. He makes the same offer to Philip as well, to come and see, to follow as well. But the third point is probably the most important point that I want you to remember today. It's that Jesus' invitation is to come and see, but so can we. Isn't it cute? It rhymes. Hopefully that'll help you remember it. Jesus invited, we said, how many men in the scripture that we just read to, to come and see? Three. How many men did Jesus personally invite? The answer is three. But just one moment ago, I said that by the end of chapter one, we have five names that we're told that Jesus had collected, right? Jesus invited Andrew, John the author, and Philip. But by the end of this chapter, we also see that Peter and Nathaniel are on the scene as well. Jesus went to Andrew and said, Andrew, come and see. And the first thing that Andrew does when he sees is he runs home to tell his brother, Peter. So, Peter, we have found the Messiah. And he, he brings Peter to Jesus. It's Jesus who finds Philip and says, hey, Philip, follow me. Come and see. But Philip goes right out and Philip finds his friend Nathaniel. And, and, and Philip brings Nathaniel to see Jesus. And he says the same thing. He says, we have found the one, uh, I'm sorry, we have found the one about who all the prophets wrote about. Nathaniel, as we read, he doubts that this could possibly be true. But then right there in verse 46, Philip makes the same offer to his doubting friend as Jesus once made to Philip himself. He says, Nathaniel, come and see. It's the exact same offer. Philip doesn't have to do anything other than what what should already come naturally to all of us. This is something we all do in our lives every single day. If you see a funny video on social media, what do you do with it? You repost it, you share it. You want all of your friends and family members and co-workers, all the people that you interact with, you want them, you, you say, hey, come and see this funny video that I found. The same way if you see a new television show or a movie trailer, you go to other people who you think might be excited to discuss it with you, and you say, can you believe what happened on last week's episode of whatever, or, or have you seen how the new Marvel movie ends? And if they haven't, you say, I can't believe you haven't seen it. It's so awesome. You have to come and see for yourself. Again, this is our natural reaction to things that excite us. If you found a new homeopathic remedy for headaches, right? where are all my essential oil people at? Would you keep that secret to yourself? Of course not. Essential oil people never keep it to themselves, do they? Will you sit by and will you watch people that you know, know people you know, people you care for? 
Would you watch them suffer from a debilitating headache knowing that you have a stash of lavender oil in your back pocket right now? Right? Or would you say, hey, I used to suffer the same exact way as you, but I found a cure that works for me. Come and see for yourself. I don't have to explain how all of it works to you right away, do I? I'm just asking you if you want some relief. Uh, I'm not going to explain the entire plot of the movie to you if you have not seen it yet. I'm just going to tell you how good it is, and I'm going to invite you to come see for yourself. Right? Just simply making the offer, asking people if they would like to see what this is all about. It's the most basic step. It is step one when it comes to making disciples. And plenty of people are going to laugh you off. Right? They're going to tell you that they don't want to hear about your magic headache oil. And they're going to be happy to suffer in silence. And that may sound silly, but again, a lot of people are going to. But your conscience is going to be clear because you offered. You invited them to come and see. You did not hide the miracle that you know would have blessed them. You invited them and they chose not to partake. But there will be others. There will be those like Peter and like Nathaniel. They're going to be smart enough to realize, what do I have to lose? And they're going to come, and they're going to see for themselves what this whole Jesus commotion is all about. See, this is exactly how Jesus collected disciples. And it's a simple way that we can begin to do the same thing. If you meet me, and you start to get to know me, my hope would be is that you would see something different in me than you do in the rest of the world. And when you inquire as to what is it that, that makes me go west when maybe the rest of the world is heading east, I don't have to initially explain to you complicated theological matters. I don't have to begin by breaking down the trinity or forgiveness of sins through grace on day one. I think what I have to do initially is I have to invite you. I have to make the offer to you to, to have you come closer and see. I say, come to church with me and see. Open your Bible with me and see. Hear my testimony and see. Pray with me.